0: story. Resurrection. Third day is a day of resurrection. And if you think I'm stretching that, you just go down a little further in the next part of chapter 2 and you look at verse 19. Destroy this temple, says Jesus, and I'll raise it again in three days. Anything else? Whoa. What do you guys think of Jesus' response to his mother? You like it, <laughs> says someone. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, it. You know what? I tried so hard to find the commentary that could explain the sassiness away. And some tried really hard. Now, some, most of you guys have NIV Bibles where it says, Dear Woman. I don't know why the NIV does that, because there's no dear. It's woman. My oldest is a teenager. I heard him say that in the house this week to my bride. Okay, why are you responding that way? There's nothing wrong with that word, is there? I'm glad you didn't see how I responded to that, okay? We're going to get to that, though. Someone in our group, though, in light of that, what does Mary do? What? Don't you love it, she says. Just do whatever he tells you to do. There's, I could say that's the application of the whole thing. Just do whatever Jesus says to do. And see, she could have just walked away at that moment with her tail between her legs. But I'm going to tell you something. She's a Jewish woman. And here's where I'm going to just give you that word chutzpah. She doesn't quit. She goes to Jesus because there's a problem. And Jesus kind of pushes her aside. And she says, now just do whatever Jesus... She just stays with it. I love it. I love it. Stay with them. You had... Thank you. And I'm going to tell you something. I'm not going to teach on this, but there is a huge takeaway here. Jesus even cares about the smallest things, even those little things that are embarrassment. He cares about every detail of your life, everything. Thank you. We ready to dive into this thing? All right, uh, let's stand for the reading of God's word. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus disciples, Jesus and his disciples had been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Literally the Lord of the feast. I love that because who's the real Lord of the feast in this story? They did so and the Lord of the feast tasted the water that had been turned into wine he did not realize where it come from i love it there's so many people here that don't even know what happened they don't even know where this wine came from well the servants who had drawn the water they knew and then he called the bridegroom aside and he said everyone brings out the choice wine first and then a the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink that word literally is close in in greek to drunk okay um But you've saved the best. You've saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This is God's word. You can be seated. Let me just start with some uh, background information. I think also might be helpful as we dive into this text. Weddings, first of all, in the ancient world were were very different than our Friday night or Saturday night or Saturday afternoon deal. These were three, four, five, sometimes week-long affairs. And relatives from both sides of the family, people from the village, maybe neighboring villages, they joined together for this big, long, loud, raucous expensive celebration that's the kind of wedding that John is talking about the other thing I want us to know is this that weddings in the Middle East are also very different from weddings in our Western world because in Western world wedding who is the focal point it's a bride I mean the groom just kind of has to show up that day right all eyes are on the bride. That's not what it is in the, in, in the Middle Eastern world. It's here comes the groom. Because the groom is the focal point, And it's the bride who just kind of merely shows up for the wedding. And see, not only is the groom the deal, but he's also responsible to pay for the whole deal. It all fell on him. And there was huge social expectation in terms of what this guy had to deliver. Because this thing was not just a few hours, this thing was days, sometimes a whole week. And he would be known for the kind of celebration that he could produce. Now those six stone water jars, I want to draw our attention there as well, because Those jars tell us two important things about this family, namely the groom. First of all, it tells us that this groom is very wealthy. Studying in Israel, one of the classes I took was in archaeology, and it was taught by one of the top archaeologists in the world. And he told our class that they have uncovered these stone water jars used for ceremonial cleansing. And they were, they were made out of Jerusalem stone. And they've only found them in the wealthiest of the wealthy homes. The second thing that we know because about this family, because they had these stone jars, is that they were very observant to Torah. Because ritual purity... These ceremonial washings were done by people who were intensely devoted to God. And here's the deal. Observant Jews in Jesus' day would wash. They'd wash before the meal. They'd wash during the meal. They'd wash after the meal. They washed in the morning. They washed at noon. They washed before they went to bed. They washed several times a day. Because washing consumed them. Now, why does John tell this story? I mean, here you have this obscure wedding, an obscure little village called Cana, where no one except for a few servants, a handful of disciples, even walk away knowing with what Jesus did. And yet John says in verse 11, he says, this is, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Well, first, let me just unpack this word first. This is the first. And when a guy like John is saying this is the first, and you look at how he pieces his gospel together, a lot like the other gospel writers, you're going to know something. Something. They don't care about order the way we care about order. So John's not saying this is first in terms of order. What he's saying is this is first in terms of significance and importance. Whoa. So this is a big deal. And see, what John does in his gospel is he is carefully putting all this thing together so that, as he says at the end, this is why I'm writing this thing, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And see, he says something else at the end of his gospel. It's frustrated me. This is what he says. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. I'm like, John... Why do you have to be such a terrible biographer? (laughs) Write these things. Tell us these things. And then he kind of like at the very end, really kind of teases us when he says, if every one of these things were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And I just say, John, what are you thinking? I want that stuff. I need that stuff. You know what John would say? No, you don't. You need exactly what the Holy Spirit has inspired me to give you. And this is one of the seven signs that John gives us. And it's the first. And see, here's. What John also uses, he doesn't just call this a miracle. He calls this a miraculous sign because signs and miracles are different. A a miracle is simply the awesome display of God's raw power. It's boom, the finger of God breaks in. But a sign, while it is that, it's more than that. It's God's raw power breaking in to paint a picture. It's, It's a real life parable all done to reveal God's glory. And what do I mean by God's glory? I mean to reveal the the godness of God. And so God uses miraculous signs to say, this is who I am, and this is what I'm doing in the world. And see what signs do. I mean, just think about when you're driving. What do they do? They tell you where you are, And they tell you where you need to go and how to get there. That's what these signs do. They're always pointing us forward to a specific destination. They direct us to where we need to go. And so really, the last thing I just want to say is what Jesus does at this obscure little wedding in an obscure little village is of first importance to knowing who God is, his heart, and what God is doing in our world today. Okay, now let's get into the story. Well, let's just say a little problem arises. It says they have no more wine. And you and I are left thinking, okay, what's, what's the big deal about this? And I'm not getting into this morning about whether a person should drink wine or not drink wine at a wedding. Um, but let me just bring us back to this world. What might seem like a very little deal to us was a very big deal to them. In that culture, this would be cause for public humiliation for the, for the bridegroom. Because wine in the scriptures, it's a symbol for something. Does anybody know? Joy. Joy. I mean, there are so many places I could take you, like Psalm 104, 14 and 15, where it says he brings forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the heart of man. Or Ecclesiastes 10 verse 19, where it says a feast is made for laughter and wine makes life merry. See, wine is the centerpiece of the celebration and the wine ran out, meaning the joy had run out. And that's not supposed to happen at a wedding. And add to this that this is a shame-based culture. I mean, these are people that just live in these little villages. Everybody knows everybody else. And so this catering disaster would probably tarnish this groom's name for life. The wine had run out. And I say, isn't this a picture of our world? The wine has run out. The joy has run out. I mean, running out is a major theme of the story because running out is a major theme of the whole Bible. Running out of wine. Take you to so many fun places in the scripture where it uses wine to speak of our world running out of joy. Isaiah 24, it says, The new wine dries up, and the vine withers, and all the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of the tambourines is stilled. The noise of the revelers is stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. All joy turns to gloom. All happiness is banished from the earth. And some of you are here today. It's a major theme of your life. There's no more wine. Your life has run out of wine. Your life has run out of joy. Or maybe it's something else. I mean, ask yourself right now, what, what is your statement of need? Maybe you've run out of love in your marriage. Maybe you have run out of forgiveness towards those people who've hurt you. Maybe life has been really hard lately and there's just no more peace or happiness. Maybe today you're tired and you're exhausted. There's no more strength. Maybe right now you're intensely lonely because there's no real friendships in your life. Maybe right now your life is full of worry and fear and anxiety and there's no more courage to face another day. What is your no more? Because what this story tells us is that Jesus came for the more. Jesus comes to the dying party to bring a feast. He came to bring new wine. Do you know this? I mean, John is saying this is his first sign. This is first in importance in showing off the glory of God. It's to come to a dine party and provide. Do you know how much wine he provides? 150 gallons of the choicest wine. That's 800 bottles. I'll tell you right now Jesus came to this world to bring a party he did and you know what if you don't get that if that just seems weird to you if that seems odd to you then i have to ask you do you really know him are you participating in the kingdom of god because the kingdom of god it's a party And I want us to see this picture because John wants us to see this picture. He is painting a picture and see what wine is to the, to the Jewish mindset. It, it's more than just a symbol for joy. But wine, new wine, the best wine is, it's a metaphor in the Old Testament for what Messiah will bring when he comes. That when the rescuer comes, it will be a day of wine. You're like, boy, Rod, that's a great thought. But I'd like for you to kind of maybe root that thing in scripture. I'd love to do that. I mean, look at Isaiah 25. I love this. This might be the, 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 the clearest picture of the gospel and what the gospel will entail in the whole Old Testament. Because this is what it says in Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. That's the picture. Here's the reality. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The the sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. That's Messiah. That's what he's going to do when he comes. Joel 3 also um, speaks of this powerful imagery in in, in verses 17 and 18. It says, when God is going to make himself known... In that day. And whenever the Bible says in that day in the Old Testament, it's a reference to the day of Messiah. When Messiah comes, he says the mountains will drip with new wine. Here comes Jesus. To a dying party. To rescue it. And he comes to this dying, joyless world. He comes to dying, joyless people. To a world that's run out of everything. And he comes to bring it wine. Do you know this? It's like, hmm, I never thought about that before. Tony Campolo, when I was a student at Wheaton, came and spoke for a whole week and. I still remember the story he told. He uh, said he was in this city to speak, and his clock is that he wakes up at three o'clock in the morning, and he got up at three and didn't quite know what to do with himself, so he just went to get breakfast. And so he goes to this local diner. No one's in there. he gets his coffee. And he says, all of a sudden, a little bit later, eight prostitutes come into the restaurant. They just got done with their night. And one of them said to the group, it's my birthday tomorrow. Just kind of flippantly. That kind of went in Tony Campolo's brain and then into his heart. And then uh, when they left, he waited for them to leave. He said to the person running the diner, he said, do they come in here a lot? He's like, oh, it's like clockwork every single night. And Tony said, all right, you and I, we're going to throw that girl a party. And that guy jumped on it so much. He got his wife involved. They got some of the other prostitutes involved. They had that whole thing just completely decorated. Got a cake. Next day, here she comes. and She opens that door birthday Tony said she literally almost stumbled and she just started crying like a little girl and she said no one has ever remembered my birthday and they had this huge cake and they were about ready to cut it and and she said stop 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 I'm sorry can I please just keep it and she took it all the way home she goes I'll be right back she comes back They party throughout the morning or night, however you see it at that time of day. And Tony then says, I I, I stepped into that thing and I just prayed. I prayed Jesus into her life. I prayed Jesus into that room. He said, I don't even know what happened to her. But he said, afterward, the diner came up to me and just said, I didn't realize you were a pastor. He goes, what kind of pastor are you at church at? Tony said, you know, I... At that moment, I thought one of the most profound thoughts. So I just said it. He said, I'm pastor of the church that throws parties for prostitutes. (laughs) Do you go to that church? Why not? Jesus went to that church. You know what they said about Jesus? He came eating and drinking with sinners and people of those kind. They even said he's a glutton and a drunkard. Not that he was, but the guy came, he knew how to party. He threw a party. Because the kingdom of heaven, it's a feast. It's a party. Where's the party? Where is it? Where's the feast? Does the world see in the body of Jesus a people who feast and provide feast for sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes? See, Mary knows this about Jesus. I mean, she remembers the angels. She watched this word made flesh grow up before her every single day. She knows him. That's why when the party runs out, she finds Jesus. Jesus, do something here. Now, this is the part in this text where I just think what Jesus says and does, it just seems a little off to me. I mean, it's already been mentioned. He just seems, he seems edgy. Mother. Why do you involve me? Or more literally, what does this have to do with me? And see, here Jesus seems to me to be a bit terse. He seems a bit edgy, almost irritable. And I didn't know what to do with this. But Tim Keller suggests something that I think is really good. Because what is it that we do at a wedding, especially when we're single, and at that marriageable age? What do we do we think of our own wedding kev's back there but not marcy i remember when marcy and kevin got married marcy is my sister and she's my younger sister um and i remember you know how they do this at the reception the whole bridal party's introduced and i'm standing next to my brother we have to stand in front of everybody neither one of us have dates and I don't know, people could not hear us, but they could maybe see our lips, mum, when we were just both saying to each other, man, we just both suck right now, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> not that we did, I mean, but you feel that kind of thing. Cause, and, but in the back of my mind, though, I'm thinking, you know what? There's this stole girl that I just started to date, and I started already to like her enough to already be thinking about my wedding. And see, what Tim Keller suggests is, could it be that Jesus is thinking of his wedding day and his wedding feast? Because think about it. Who is Jesus? I mean, he, he, he all the time in his teachings, whether it's through parables or, or, or just teaching, he says, I'm the bridegroom. In fact, in John 3, verse 29, it, John the Baptist gets confused with Jesus, or they confuse Jesus and John the Baptist, and... And and they say, are you the one, John the Baptist? And John says, you know what? The bride belongs to the bridegroom. Don't confuse me with the bridegroom. I'm just the best man. And see, when you look at the biblical story, it starts with a wedding. And there's wedding all the way through it. And it ends with a wedding. Whose wedding? Jesus' wedding. It ends with a banquet. The wedding feast, the lamb. So the whole thing is going. And see, look at what, what, what Jesus says to Mary. He says, Mary, look, my time has not yet come. Time for what? See, the word literally here is the word hour. And if you read John's gospel, you see that several times throughout John's gospel, Jesus says this. He says, all right, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. Every time he says my hour has not come, it's a reference to something very specific. What? What? His death. So hear the conversation. Mary says to him, Jesus, they've run out of wine. Je- Jesus responds, It's not my time to die. And what's going on here? See, Mary is thinking miracle, Jesus is thinking sign. Mary's thinking, How can we spare these two teenagers some social embarrassment? Jesus thinking about another wedding, another feast, and a different kind of wine, and what it's going to cost him to provide, provide wine at his wedding feast. You know what it costs him? To provide the choicest of wines? He says it in Matthew 26, 27, and 29. He says, he took the cup... He gave thanks, he offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood. That's what it cost him. In fact, he says, this is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I'm not going to drink of this fruit of the vine from now or until the day of my wedding and the wedding feast of the Lamb. And I love it how one commentator put it, Jesus at Cana is sipping on the cup of sorrow so we can drink from the cup of joy and abundant life and life eternal. And if you don't think this is what Jesus might be thinking, well, look at what he does to perform the sign. He says, fill the water jars with water. He doesn't just take any old water jar, but he uses these jars that are constant, Reminders to the Jews of their need to be made clean. And like I said before, I don't think any of us can really comprehend how obsessive compulsive the Jewish people in Jesus' day were with ritual washing. Now, let me tell you something about this ritual washing. This was not ritual washing done because they were germophobes. They weren't washing to get their hands physically clean. Because the water that they were using, it was probably dirtier than their hands. But the water symbolized washing. And it was this whole idea, like Lady Macbeth says, out damn spot. It's this water that's put on them to deal with the stains of sin. So what they're doing is they're really performing mikvah. My head, my heart, my hands, my feet. Wash it. Make me clean. And see what these pots represented was all the requirements of the Jewish law. And I think one of the things that we forget on this side of the, of the cross that was so in their thinking about God is this. God is holy. holy. And so these are just daily reminders to them that I don't measure up. I'm cracked. I'm flawed. I'm fragile. I'm stained. And here's what I want you guys to notice in terms of what Jesus does See, he doesn't take these six stone jars and like smash them, done with all that stuff, all that ritual purity. He uses them. And see, I think sometimes so many of us just kind of look at the whole story of God and we look at the first half, which we call the Old Testament, and we think, huh, that just didn't work that well. So God just kind of pitched it and started all over with the New Covenant and the New Testament. But that's not the deal. Because Jesus says this. I didn't come to destroy Torah. I, I, I came to fill it. All of it. Every jot. Every tittle. Every word. Every feast. Every Sabbath. He fills it with the best. Oh. Now listen to me. Today if we're honest. Or maybe this is just me and you can leave me hanging. I don't care. We all know this feeling of not measuring up, don't we? I mean, don't we also live in a shame based culture? And don't those stone jars kind of represent us? Aren't we nothing more than jars of clay, as the Apostle Paul puts? Just just cracked jars. And see, I know what some of you right now are thinking. In, in your self-righteousness, in your arrogance, in your pride, in your religiosity, you're thinking to yourself, you know what, I don't think these things. I don't feel these things. I, th- I think I measure up just fine. But then let me ask you, why are you hiding? Why are you so scared of being found out? Why are you constantly playing this game of pretend? Why do you come into this place like a, like a clean-pressed shirt with your life all buttoned up like that thing? Why, why, why do you feel this need to talk the talk? Uh, put this image on where, where you, you're, you're portraying, portraying something that you're not. You're playing this game of pretend. Because you're hiding. Do you know today your need? Apart from Jesus. To be made clean. Desperate need. So I'll tell you what. This is what I loved so much about George, George Verwer. You guys don't know this. Because you probably went to one service last week. I went to all three. He preached a different sermon. At every everything. Every gathering. So I got three different sermons. But I'll tell you the one takeaway. I got from every sermon. And it set my heart free. Because I want to just be honest with you right now. I'm a pastor. I don't like to play that game. I don't even think of myself as a pastor. I don't claim its perks, I don't claim its privileges, nor do I claim its pressures. I just kind of, but yet at the same time, sometimes I I fall into that thing and I I feel like I need to be perfect, but in my heart I know I'm not perfect. I'm close. And what George Verwer reminded me as a seven-year-old man is that a guy can be wholehearted for the Lord and deeply imperfect, but still wholehearted. Isaiah says it. All of us have become like one who is unclean. Even our best acts of righteousness are nothing but filthy rags to God, says Isaiah. But here's the good news of the gospel. And of what we see from this sign, this first sign of Jesus, Jesus not only cleanses us, he recreates us. He didn't just come for our purification. He came for our transformation. And I love these words because I think these words really sum up the whole gospel and the whole Bible and everything that God is doing in Jesus and and through Jesus. It's this simple clause had been turned into. That's what he does. He takes water and he turns it into wine. He takes something ordinary or less than ordinary and he turns it into something extraordinary. He takes something completely empty and broken and turns it into fullness in life. Do you know this? See, Jesus came to fix us. He came to recreate us. He came to resurrect us on the third day. Can I ask right now, is your life full? Of the new wine. He's bursting right now. You know what? There's going to be disappointment. There's going to be setbacks. We're going to experience loss. Some of us are even going to suffer. We're going to lose things. But in spite of all this, is there just party inside of you and is there party breaking out of you right now? Why not? Why not? He invites us to a feast. And he puts feast in our life. He puts the new wine in our heart. Do you want it? You know, you can have this wine. Isaiah 55 says, come, come to me. And I'll give, you, I'll give you wine. I'll give it to you free. And I'll tell you how you can have it. You can, you can have it by, by doing exactly what Jesus does with these stone jars. First of all, you, just, you have to recognize your need. You need to get empty. You need to be able to come to, to Jesus like Mary comes to Jesus and just say, I have no more. I've run out. My life is empty. See, even even rich bridegrooms run out of money. And at some point in the game, every single one of us is going to run out of health. We're going to run out of friends. We're going to run out of even breath itself. We're all going to run out. Our world is running out. Come to him as needy, needy. And then Fill that emptiness with Christ. Drink. I'll tell you what, we're invited to a feast. A banquet. A party. You know what I love? I love verse 9. Here is the Lord of the feast who says, And the master of the banquet, the Lord of the feast, tasted... The water that had been turned into wine. Do you understand? This whole thing is about tasting. It's not just about knowing and believing, it's about tasting and drinking. How do you know that wine's good? It's just cause you know it's good and you believe it's good. No, it's cause you've tasted it and that's ah, good. See, this is why God always uses sensory language in describing our relationship to Him. He says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And see, there's a big difference between just knowing and believing and tasting and drinking. And see, God doesn't just intend for us to just know and believe, but he wants us to know and believe through tasting. He tasted them. Let me just end with this. This is Jesus' first miracle. It's about more than wine, the best of wines. It's even about more than a feast. What is this thing? What's, where is Jesus? He's at a wedding. And see, when God reaches into the human language and he, he looks for a term or a picture to point us to what he is about and who he is and what he is doing in our world, God, from the beginning and throughout the story, takes hold of this term wedding and this term marriage and he says this is what i'm doing this is what i'm what i'm about i want to marry people i made them at the beginning to be in union with me and i want to marry them again do you know god's heart on this do you know right now how much he loves you I mean, just think for a moment of all the images that God uses to describe his relationship with us. I mean, some of these images are just mind-boggling, awesome. He says, I'm your king, meaning he's our ruler. He's in control of every aspect of our lives. He says, I'm your shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. I lay my life down for you. I lead you in paths of righteousness. I lead you to the still waters. He says, I'm father. I mean, what an image. And he says, as a father carries his son, so I've carried you. Such a loving dad. But is there anything more powerful than this? Jesus saying, I'm your bridegroom. Your husband. See, I've had the privilege now to do many weddings. And what I get to see No matter what that bride looks like, in reality, on this day, every single time without fail, she is stunning. She is ravishingly beautiful. See, and then I get to stand up there next to the groom when everyone is looking that way, and I'm just kind of taking this whole thing in. Because I'm just like, I'm there. If this guy has to faint right now, I'm going to pick him up. Because I was once a groom. And all of us grooms know that at that moment when the doors open, and there she is, it's like, are you kidding me? She's going to go through with this. (laughs) And your heart is just like, she's so beautiful. This is my bride. Jesus says, my bridegroom. When he looks at us, he's, are you kidding? I get, to, I get to marry that. Beautiful. He's ravaged by our beauty. In Hebrew weddings, the way a man proposes to his bride, I don't know if he gets down on the knee the way we do it, but he gets a glass of wine and he takes it and he offers it to her and he says, this cup is the cup of my covenant that I'm making with you today. Because that wine in that cup represents his blood, his life, And as he offers that cup, what he's saying to her, all that I am, all that I have, I give myself to you. Isn't that what the disciples heard? Jesus saying, this is the cup of my covenant, of the new covenant to you. I think they heard Jesus saying to them, will you marry me? bride does is she then takes that cup and the way she says yes she drinks and in drinking the wine she's saying to him with all that I am and all that I have I give myself to you are you in the marriage really it's real food it's real wine Today, if you're not in the marriage and you want to be in the marriage or you are in the marriage and you want to say to God, with all that I am and all that I have, I give myself to you. He has provided the feast. It's our job to drink it. Let's pray. God, I know I I, I was too loud today. Forgive me. But I just, I love the love of God. And my heart is so thirsty for the grace of Jesus. I'm just a sinner, Lord. But I love your wine. I love it. And I crave it. And I delight in it. Thank you, Jesus, for offering to me and to us the best. The best is in you, Jesus. I pray that we take it.